Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the life and work of Florida sculptor Charles Adrian Pillars. This bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924. We'll discuss editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly, past and present. We've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. And we'll talk about Miami Advice columnist Eleanor Hart. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Life, the Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars is the new book by Jacksonville historian and author Wayne W. Wood. Life is also the name of Pillars' 20-foot-tall bronze statue that was unveiled in 1924 in Jacksonville to commemorate Florida soldiers who had died in World War I. I got started on this project um, basically by seeing this beautiful statue out in Jacksonville's Memorial Park for virtually all my life since I was five years old. When I first saw it, I was a little bit scared by it. It's this giant winged creature standing on a globe holding a, a branch of some sort in his hand. And as a little boy, it frightened me. I thought it was a giant of some sort. But as I've grown older and grown to love it, I realized this is without a doubt one of the most beautiful public works of art in the state of Florida. It is a bronze sculpture, 20 feet tall, silhouetted against the St. John's River in a beautiful Olmstead Park, Memorial Park in Riverside section of Jacksonville. And this bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924. While residents of and visitors to Jacksonville are familiar with the work of Charles Adrian Pillars, until Wayne Wood's extensive biography, little was known about the sculptor himself. Wood was inspired by a master's thesis on the life sculpture written by Diane Daywood Taylor. Wood did extensive research that included interviewing Pillars' two daughters who are in their 90s. Pillars uh, was born and grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Illinois. And at an early age, he was shown to exhibit remarkable artistic talent. And uh, when he was about 15 years old, he went to Chicago to apprentice with a noted sculptor there, Laredo Taft. And at about this time, coincidentally, the Great World's Fair of Chicago was underway. They were building the fair and it started in 1893. 
just when he was uh, engaged in his apprenticeship with Laredo Taft. And the World's Fair was a signal event in American history. Uh, one commentator said it was the second most important event at that time in the United States history after the Civil War. Because in this World's Fair, artists, sculptors, merchants came from all over the world to be part of this great American World's Fair, which was in some ways a rival to the World's Fair in 1888 in Paris, at which the Eiffel Tower was the uh, great landmark. So Chicago had a chip on its shoulder. It was the second city to New York, and it wanted to show itself as one of the great cities of the world. So this World's Fair was destined to be a cultural landmark uh, on the American scene. And so they built all these beautiful white palaces around a giant lagoon, and all these white palaces required sculpture, and that's why the, the greatest sculptors in all the world came to Chicago. And so Pillars was there in the midst of this renaissance and the um, era of sculptural art, and he met all the great sculptors of the time. Daniel Chester French was his, one of his mentors. French later went on to design the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C and August St. Gaudens, and so many of the ones who we now know today as the great uh, sculptors in the pantheon of American artists. So they were all there. Pillars, being a young student apprentice, uh, helped out many of those sculptors, and he got assigned to work with Daniel Chester French to build the giant colossus that was out in the lagoon. If you've ever seen a picture of the 1893 World's Fair, you've surely seen this golden lady of the same scale as the Statue of Liberty out in the middle of the lagoon. Well, young Charles Pillars got to sculpt the head. It was the largest head ever sculpted in the United States at the time. And so uh, with that under his belt and many of the other sculptors that he helped to design for the fair, uh, he felt like he was destined to be one of the great sculptors in America himself. That winter happened to be the coldest winter in the history of Chicago. It was down below zeros for a day in a row. Uh, it was a great impediment for building the World's Fair. They somehow pulled it off. But after the fair was over, Pillars wanted to go someplace warm. And so he he had an uncle in Jacksonville, and he said, you know, Florida is a place that's warm. Jacksonville is the largest city in Florida. I think I'll go there and become the greatest sculptor in Florida, with you know, him being one of the few artists in this uh, newly uh, growing state. Pillars moved to Florida to escape the cold weather of Chicago, but arrived in Florida just in time for the famous Big Freeze of 1894-95. Pillar's uncle was president of Jacksonville's city council, but government leaders at the time didn't show much interest in commissioning art. After World War I, Pillars was commissioned to create the huge life sculpture. Wayne Wood. The Rotary Club thought it was important to do a memorial of some sort to those soldiers and service people who died uh, in the World War I, the Great War as they called it. And so a number of people suggested ideas, and uh, after a lot of confusion and ineptness, the committee that was commissioning the sculpture and designing the park 
uh, was met with a woman named Nina Kummer, who later went on to become the grand dame of Jacksonville's art and founder of the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens. But she uh, challenged Pillars to design the greatest work of art he had ever done. And uh, he was part of this commission of people who helped design the park. The park was um, designed by the Olmsted brothers, the most famous landscape architecture firm in the country, the two sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of American landscape architecture. And uh, Ms. Kummer was the one who got them involved. And there was this uh, clash of artistic egos between the Olmsted brothers and Pillars and Ms. Kummer trying to make this the most beautiful park they could. And it eventually came out well, but not without lots of trials and tribulations, which are uh, covered in this book. At the base of the life sculpture, a box was buried that contained a list of the 1,200 Florida soldiers known to have died in World War I. When Hurricane Irma struck in 2017, Jacksonville Memorial Park was flooded and the list of names was waterlogged. Fortunately, archaeologists were able to uncover and save the document. When Hurricane Irma came a couple of years ago, it not only destroyed some of the plants, but it also destroyed some of the beautiful concrete balustrade that goes over 200 feet across the front of the park, fronting on the river. And uh, fortunately, the great statue, which the name of the statue is Life. And fortunately, Life statue was not hurt, but there are wonderful and amazing photographs and videos of rolling waves coming off of the river, far towering over the balustrade and crashing onto the statue. And fortunately, uh, the salt water did not do any lasting damage to the great bronze statue itself. Video of the preservation of the World War I scroll can be seen in the Florida Frontiers television episode, World War I in Florida, which is archived online at myfloridahistory.org. When Charles Adrian Pillars first came to Florida, he mainly created portrait busts and medallions for prominent people. Eventually, Pillars received a commission to create a statue that still stands in the United States Capitol building. Author Wayne Wood. Finally, in 1912, he landed one of the most significant commissions of his career, and that was to place a statue of a Florida hero in the statuary hall in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Every state was allowed to have two of their heroes commemorated uh, in statuary in this great hall of American heroes. And so the first one that Florida chose was Dr. John Gorey, the inventor of the ice-making machine, uh, which uh, later on went on to the development of air conditioning without which Florida would not exist as we know it today. So he was a great hero at the time and there was a very intense competition to get the commission to do this first sculpture and Pillars won it and he did a a seven or eight foot tall marble statue, Carrera marble, uh, that is still in the capital of Washington DC today. After that it came time to choose the second hero from Florida, and the legislature chose General Kirby Smith, the famous Confederate War hero, and um, Pillars again vied for that. The competition was intense, and he eventually won that. So now he had the commission for two great sculptures to go in the Capitol. 
However, uh, even after he finished the General Kirby Smith statue, got installed in the Capitol, but they never dedicated it because there was controversy from Northern legislators that they should not be commemorating Confederate heroes. And so it remained in the Capitol undedicated for almost five years. And finally, in 1922, without any ceremony in particular, it was officially declared a statue in Statuary Hall. So those were Pillar's two big works that he did. And that led in turn in 1924 to the Statue of Life being unveiled in Memorial Park. A century after the Kirby Smith statue was quietly dedicated, it was replaced in the U.S. Capitol with a statue by Nilda Comas of educator and activist Mary McLeod Bethune on July 13, 2022. In the book, Life, the Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars, historian Wayne Wood tells many interesting stories about the people Pillars encountered and worked with, from circus performers who took classes from him at the Ringling School of Art in Sarasota, to competitors vying for the same commissions. There is sex and violence, attempted murder, insurance fraud. There are just amazing uh, little anecdotes on the side that make this a very colorful story. But it all comes back to Pillars uh, and his life, which is a double play on the word life, his sculpture. He lived through the great historical events from that very important period, from the mid-1890s to the middle of the Depression. He finally passed away in 1937. Interestingly enough, the last sculpture he did was placed on a base that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So, you know, here we go from a man whose story is unknown to all of a sudden a man whose story is so vibrant that let's a storyteller like me and a historian get to tell uh, so many of the other stories that he was involved with. He was involved in the great fire of 1901 in Jacksonville, the third largest city fire in the United States. He had to flee for his life and jumped in the river as his studio burned down in the middle of this great fire. And he also was in the Great Depression and uh, all the hardships and, and difficulties he had there. He was in the 1920s during Florida's boom years and got to celebrate that. When he lived in St. Augustine for 10 years in the 1920s, he built one of uh, St. Augustine's most well-known landmarks, now known as the Pink Castle, uh, as his own home and studio. It's still there today. So uh, the, the parts of our history and the different parts of Florida that he touched are still very much uh, with us today, and yet all these layers of history that he was involved in have been uncovered until now. Wayne W. Wood is author of the book Life, the Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars, published by the Jacksonville Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Bit by bit, put it together. Piece by piece, only 
way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as I just said, you're Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. What does an editor do? An editor, especially of a state journal, wears many, many hats. If you're editor of a national or international journal, you have a large staff to do many of the chores. But if you're editor of a state journal, it's pretty much you. And uh, so I do a variety of things. I go to conferences to hear papers. And depending on what I think about the paper presented, I invite scholars to submit their manuscript for consideration for the quarterly. Also, every manuscript that comes in, I uh, read all of the manuscripts. Some of them, I think, have potential but are not quite ready to go out to referees yet. I know they won't get a good reading if they do. And so I work with the scholar uh, to try to make changes that need to be made before I submit it to uh, referees. I select the referees based on what the article covers, and I contact those referees. I arrange for them to read the manuscript. By the way, all referees do not know who the author is, so it's a double-blind process. The scholar does not know who read their work, and the referees do not know who the scholar is. Only I know who both parties are. Uh, This helps with the process because you may be reading something of someone you know, Uh, You may be reading someone's work with whom you have problems, and you don't want that to interfere with the reading. Uh, So it's a double-blind process. I choose them. Once the manuscripts come back, the, the reviews come back, I make the decision. If the decision is to go ahead with the manuscript and to move toward publication, then I contact the author. I tell them what revisions need to be made based on the referee reports. When those are done, then it's my responsibility to copy edit the manuscript. If there are images that go with this, then we have to seek permission to publish those images. Once everything is put together for a particular issue, then I submit it to the person who puts it in the format that it needs in order to be published. It goes to the publisher, and then it's all over (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. I'm on to the next issue. Well, what qualifies a person to become the editor of an academic journal like this? All the editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly since about 1960 uh, have all been faculty members at universities, at uh, UF, at uh, USF, or at UCF. Um, So first of all, you're a faculty member. When the job is posted, sometimes in, in some state journals, they ask for someone with knowledge of the specific state. In my case, I was the person who would have this job would be knowledgeable in Southern history so that it's framed in a larger context. So they're all faculty members. They have faculty obligations like everyone else. I had some editing experience before I came. I was the associate editor of the Tennessee Encyclopedia Project. I had public editing experience in primary documents. I worked on the James K. Polk papers while I was in graduate school. 
And I had been a book review editor for another journal. So I had editing experience coming into it. While the Florida Historical Quarterly is just about to publish its 100th volume, how many editors has the Florida Historical Quarterly had in its 99 volumes? Well, like many state journals, very few, actually. Uh, We've had six editors, six full-time editors. We have had some interim editors when there was a period of time between editors. But we've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. Um, The first editor, Julian Young, and Sam Proctor, both had more than 30 years of of editing. I'm in my 16th year as editor. Wow. Well, you obviously do a whole lot with the journal. As you said, you wear many hats. Uh, What editorial staff, though, assists in the production of the Florida Historical Quarterly? We've had some changes. In 2011, we had an assistant editor, Dan Murphy, uh, who is also a faculty member at UCF. He was assistant editor until 2017 when he moved on to other avenues and things that he wanted to do. Uh, We have interns most semesters, but not all semesters. In 2018, the dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at UCF created a faculty position for someone who would be, in many ways, a managing editor uh, for the 11 journals that are in the College of Arts and Humanities. So he works with us as well. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. Thank you. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Bit by bit, beat by beat, part by part, sheet by sheet, chart by chart, track by track, by mid by real, by pat by sack, by sniff by shot by shot, by step by step by shot by doubt. And that is the state of the art. This is Florida Frontiers. Eleanor Hart was like Miami's own Dear Abby. Holly Baker has more on the Florida Advice Columnist. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a tenured professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She's also the author of several books, including Reevaluating Women's Page Journalism in the Post-World War II Era, Celebrating Soft News. She told me about Eleanor Hart and her popular advice column in the Miami Herald in the 1950s and 1960s. Eleanor Hart was a very popular columnist at the Miami Herald in the 1950s and 60s. That was not her real name. Many of the advice columnists, and really many columnists at newspapers, particularly if they were women, wrote under pen names. Now, for the women, this meant that they could have a little bit of anonymity in their communities. For the newspaper, the reason was usually if a woman got married, especially if she had children, she would quit the newspaper. So you could kind of put a new woman in there and there would be no difference. Eleanor Hart, however, was married and raised two children. And the name Hart was simply something she picked out of a phone book. So it was Eleanor Hart, H-A-R-T, and she wrote the column, A Column with a Heart, H-E-A-R-T. Eleanor Hart's advice column in the Miami Herald contributed to a sense of community. Readers not only learned from the issues of others, but they engaged with each other by offering their own answers to questions posed in the letters to the column. Many advice columnists would interview, say, a doctor or a therapist or an economist, trying to kind of find out what the right answer was. So it became kind of a mix of what readers ask questions about, and then they would go out and do the reporting and write up the column. As time went on, 
they became in some ways very cultural conversations. So you would have a reader write in with a question, but they were really conversational. So the reader would write in and the columnist or expert, and sometimes just other readers would comment on that. And so it was really almost a kind of early social media because there was this back and forth. When people wrote letters to Eleanor Hart, they were writing not only to her, but to her readers. By discussing shared issues, Eleanor Hart's advice column contributed to a common understanding of societal values and contemporary concerns. This was something where readers, again, would write in, and this was a local kind of column. Many people are familiar with, say, um, Dear Abby or Ann Landers, which, of course, were national columnists that were syndicated. But Eleanor just wrote for the Miami Herald. And what makes that special is that we really get to see what people were thinking in Miami in the 1950s and 1960s. So there were letters, for example, when it came to roles of gender. There was lots of discussion if women should work outside the home. And it would go back and forth. Usually it was husbands and fathers that would write in and say women should not be working outside of the home. And pushback from women that said uh, sometimes they had to. It took two incomes, for example, to have a nice home in Miami, then and now. You also saw this when it came to should girls be college educated. And there was a lot of back and forth on this about what it meant, particularly as the 60s went on. Should we be looking at women's roles differently, particularly in going to college? For 36 years, Eleanor Hart tackled tough topics in her advice column. Gender roles, infidelity, abortion, motherhood, divorce, issues often considered too taboo to discuss in public. As a working mother and a wife, her perspective enabled her to moderate conversations with a heart. Dr. Kimberly Voss. She did reporting. Um, she gave public speeches. She spoke to women's clubs, library groups. So she did have this position of authority in the community. And again, during this time period, women journalists couldn't work outside of the women's pages. They couldn't be on the front page, cover politics, for example. So these sections became a way of understanding women's roles. And this was most evident, I think, as you saw the 60s go on and a real questioning of how women's roles were going to change and what it meant to be a working mother. Because now you're suddenly allowed to after the 1950s, 60s, you were allowed to. But how do you balance these things out? And relationships in the workforce. A lot of the Me Too movement sort of things were being discussed back in the 50s and 60s when you had bosses being inappropriate with their secretaries, you know, that sort of thing. So it did foreshadow a lot of gender roles in the workplace. The fact that men didn't want to work for a woman boss, you know, those, those kinds of things are often still debated at times today. And so um, these advice columnists in the 50s and 60s not only represented what was happening at the time, they really pointed out issues that we still have not yet solved today. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. That's where you can find information about the Florida Historical Society Press 50% off summer book sale. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.